Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. Well, let's continue in our series today in the book of Revelation, the message entitled Jesus and His Churches. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 20, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I want to begin by speaking to married women. I want you to remember the day your husband proposed to you and gave you your engagement ring. What if you now found out that you didn't have a genuine diamond, but you had one of those, well, cubic zirconiums? And what if you found out that your husband didn't get it from a jewelry store, but he paid $19.95 for it from the shopping channel? Now, I suspect that it would be an interesting time in your house this evening. But what if your husband told you that it was no problem because you seemed so happy when you got the ring and and, and it wasn't that all that mattered? And beside, he tells you, I saved a lot of cash that way. And then he sums it all up by saying, instead of being angry, you should be proud of me. I mean, I'm a great money manager. Well, in response to that, I suspect an icy blast of winter would descend on your house tonight. Why? Because your love was genuine. And you thought that everything that reminds you of your love and commitment should be genuine as well. You see, no one likes frauds. No one likes cheap knockoffs. We don't want copies. We want the real thing. The book of Revelation presents us with the real thing. Jesus as he actually is. Jesus without sloppy sentimentalism. Some of us see Jesus as always affirming of whatever choices we make. We see Jesus who easily is manipulated. Jesus, the affirming therapist. Jesus, who teaches us to love ourselves. Jesus, who puts up with any choices that we make. Jesus, who never makes a firm demand on our life. You know, whether it's sexual choices or our dealing with money, our goals about the future, we expect Jesus to come alongside and encourage us to pursue our goals. And if that's you, and if that's your view of Jesus, prepare to be shocked. Jesus is not to be trifled with, and he's not the subject of our goals in life. He thinks his priority beats yours every time. Today, we're going to be studying Revelation 1, 9 to 20. So let's start with verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I want you to notice several things about John the author. You'll notice that he calls himself the brother and companion of those who are receiving this letter. His book went out to seven churches, and the people who received that book knew John personally. He doesn't tell us why he's on the island of Patmos. It's very likely that he was sentenced there for preaching the gospel, but all he says is that he was there on account of the Word of God. You know, in those days, many of the islands in the Mediterranean Sea were used as penal colonies where the enemies of the emperor were exiled. And some islands were a lot worse than others. You know, some exiles had all their assets seized and were condemned to hard labor working in the mines until death. And some were simply banished there for a period of time and were treated with dignity. And we have every reason for believing that John was not harshly treated. But the mountains and the mines of Patmos were surroundings that were likely to depress and not to encourage. And John was a prisoner away from the people and the church that he loved so dearly. And John may have had a time to look back over his own life while on the island. He was perhaps 18 years of age when Christ first called him to be his disciple now over 65 years ago. 
And he watched Jesus preach and heal and do miracles and and die on the cross and rise from the dead. He was there when Jesus went into heaven and was one of the first group who received the Holy Spirit. If anyone knew Jesus, John knew Jesus. He was called the disciple whom Jesus loved. Jesus had spent extra time nurturing him because of his young age, and when John wrote 1 John, the grammar he uses there gives the impression that he not only saw Jesus, but the image of Jesus was still burned into his retinas. And he not only touched him, but his hand still recalled the touch. He not only heard him, but the voice was still ringing in his ears. His vivid encounter with Jesus would never leave him all his life long. And after the resurrection, he spent his lifetime preaching the good news. He was the author of the official eyewitness biography of the life of Jesus, filling in some of the intimate details of Jesus' ministry. He knew Jesus and never got tired of talking about what he had seen and heard. He told others that it made his joy complete to talk about Jesus. He was involved in planting churches everywhere and saw the gospel was growing. John was a leading elder in the early church. Indeed, he had given leadership to the church in Ephesus, and it was there that he had taken care of Mary, Jesus' mother, until she died. If you had questions about Jesus, ask John. He was there. If any man knew Jesus, he knew Jesus. But the enemies of the gospel had noticed as well. You know, Stephen was the first martyr. He was a deacon in the church in Jerusalem, and and he was stoned to death. James was the first apostle to lay down his life. He was put to death by King Herod with a sword, simply run through. Paul had been beheaded in the city of Rome. Peter, too, was crucified upside down in the same city. Every one of the original disciples had died a martyr's death. John alone was left living. But he was not intimidated. He had remained a powerful witness to Jesus, and eventually he was banished to the island of Patmos. And a rumor had begun to spread. It was said that Jesus would return before John died. John himself had had written about this rumor in the Gospel of John. When Peter saw him, he said, and I'm reading John 21, verses 21 to 23, Lord, what about him? And Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? See, John never set dates. He he never predicted the actual time of Jesus' return. He knew that Jesus could come back while he was alive, but, but he also knew that he might die before Jesus returned. He was content with that knowledge. Look again at verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. That's quite a confluence of factors. The first is tribulation. This is a reference to suffering. The second is the kingdom. See, John never doubted that Jesus had already begun to reign. See, believers in Christ, according to John, live on two planes in, in which we know both suffering and the kingdom. All of us who have encountered Christ have encountered the kingdom of God. See, every time Jesus did a miracle, every time he cast out a demon, every time he healed the sick, he announced this as the evidence that the kingdom of God had begun to reign. A new era of God's reign has begun, and it was now unstoppable. Rome would never hold it back. Neither will those who oppose the gospel in our time period. If you've encountered Christ, you would know that this changes everything. We're citizens of his kingdom, having been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. The new era has not only begun in the world, it has begun inside of us. 
John expressed it that way. In 1 John 3, 9, he confidently tells us, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he's been born of God. See, everyone who has been born of God has a new nature, and we no longer submit to the lifestyle of sin. Yet at the same time, John warns us of another reality. That reality deals with pain still living in this world. Here's what he says in 1 John 1, verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. See, Christians do sin, but they can't remain in sin. These are the two realities we see in every single believer. You see, all of us who have truly met Christ live on two planes. We know the reality of the new, but we still feel the pain and the sting of the old. So John begins the book in this way. I know the kingdom, he says because I've encountered Jesus, yet I know the suffering because I'm banished on Patmos. Some of us need to work that into our theology. Suffering and glory go hand in hand until we see Jesus again. See, I can't promise you that you won't suffer in this life. Indeed, I can promise you that the opposite will happen. You will experience in your following of Jesus both tribulation and the kingdom at the same time. And here's the key. That reality should lead us to patient endurance. The kingdom of God is forever, yet the present world really does press so heavily upon us now. But we should be reminded that in the light of eternity, this world and its sorrows will indeed be short. We are called upon to exercise patient endurance. And so John, he's now an old man, and he might have thought that his work on this earth was almost over, and it could have been. Given his age, it might have seemed that his ministry was done. But indeed, John is in his old age banished to Patmos, and the suffering begins again, and his call to stand with Jesus lasts all the way through to an old man. The great battle will be enjoined until Christ comes again, and he and we must remain patient until Christ comes again. This March, beginning Monday the 6th, and every Monday after that, Back to the Bible Canada will be airing our new video production with Dr. John Newfeld entitled Truth and Life Today. Join us every Monday or watch any or every episode online at truthandlifetoday.com or search Truth and Life Today for our YouTube channel. Truth in Life Today is our opportunity to have Dr. Newfeld answer the many compelling Bible and critical Christian life questions we receive from listeners quite literally around the globe. In fact, you can make your question available by visiting truthandlifetoday.com. We're so excited about this opportunity to interact with you, the listener. So join Dr. Newfeld to dig deeply into God's Word every Monday, beginning Monday, March 6th. For more information about all the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, you can call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. I'm reading Revelation 1.10a. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. See, we know that by the time of the writing of this book, most Christians had begun to worship on Sunday rather than on the Jewish Sabbath. 
And so since John is referring to the Lord's Day, we've got to imagine that he, along with all of God's people, have set aside one day of each week, and it's dedicated to worship. When he says that he was in the Spirit, I don't think that John means what Paul means in Romans 8. For instance, when he says, walk in the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. I think he means the phrase here simply by saying that his mind and his heart were being directed by God into worship. And it's in an attitude of worship that the adventure of a revelation begins. Verses 10b to 11 says, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. See, the voice was like a trumpet, and that calls to mind the encounter that Israel had with God on Mount Sinai. And Exodus 19 verse 16 says that on the day in which God revealed himself, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud and there was a loud trumpet blast. And then verse 19 adds, and as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him. You know, it seemed that the trumpet, just like the trumpets that were used to announce orders to the 12 tribes in the desert, announced at Sinai that God himself had arrived. And that is exactly what John encounters as he worships at Patmos, a trumpet blast signaling that God in the person of his son Jesus had now just arrived on Patmos. And with a sudden arrival of the risen Christ comes John's assignment. He is to write all that he hears in a book and to send it to the seven churches in Asia. So let's continue to read verses 12 to 16. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now you remember that I said if one reads Revelation, one sees the real Jesus without sloppy sentimentalism. So let's get the first picture of Jesus from this book. Notice first that John sees Jesus in the midst of seven golden lampstands. Now, those of you who know your Old Testament know that both the tabernacle and the temple had essentially three parts to them. The first was the outer court, the second, the holy place, and the third was the holy of holies. Now, the holy place contained three pieces of furniture, and one of them was a golden lampstand. It was but one lampstand, and it contained seven branches, and it held seven separate candles that provided light. Now, if one goes forward to the book of Zechariah, one finds a very important vision that includes a lampstand of gold with seven lamps on top of it. Now, without going into all the details of that vision, please note that the vision of the lampstand in the book of Zechariah is a prophecy of the rebuilding of the temple that had then been burned down. In Zechariah's vision, two olive trees were providing oil for the lamp, and these olive trees represented two men. One was a man named Joshua, who was the high priest at that time, and the other, a man named Zerubbabel, a descendant of David. Now, from this text, some of the Jewish rabbis taught that in the future there would be two messiahs, one playing the role of a priest and the other playing the role of a king. Now, in John's vision, 
He sees Jesus, the one true Messiah, walking not in the presence of one lampstand with seven branches, but here among seven lampstands. Now, why is that so significant? It's because at the time of the writing of Revelation, the temple in Jerusalem had once again been burned to the ground, just like before. But this time, God was not signaling by a lampstand that the, that the temple would be rebuilt. I mean, this time, the seven lampstands show that Jesus is building his church. And instead of just having one candelabra with seven lights, one has seven golden lampstands. And that indicates that unlike what happened in the Old Testament, The church was not like ancient Israel. Ancient Israel was one people group, but the church was made up of many people groups. And each local church is to be viewed as the people of God in their fullness in one local setting. And so we see a contrast. In the present hour, Christ is not rebuilding the temple. He's building the church. And the church is made up of many local churches, and the seven lampstands represent seven local churches. Now comes the question, who is the one who builds his church? And with that, John gives us a description of Jesus who walks among his churches. First, John describes him as the Son of Man. So here he is borrowing an image from the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And in that vision, Daniel sees one like a Son of Man who is given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him and that the kingdom he establishes will never be destroyed. So allow that image to overwhelm you. The great Son of Man, who has dominion over all, has his eyes firmly set on his church. Now, I pray you'd see that. See, in our world, we're tempted to think that if you're going to understand it and understand where history is going, well, then you've got to look to powerful nations and, and powerful leaders and powerful corporations that shape world policy. You see, when Christians listen to the news, you know, they listen to the account of military forces and those who possess weapons of mass destruction and those who have the financial ability to impose their might on the world. And that's what the news media reports every single day. But that is not the news. You want to know the real news? A son of man is walking among his lampstands. And the entire future of the human story is contained in that one statement. The one who is destined to rule the earth has his eyes fully set on his church. Now, as to the rest of the description of Jesus, it's intended to highlight this reality. His robe with the golden sash illustrates that he is a great high priest, the one who gave his life for his church. The hair on his head is white as wool. It's the the same description that comes from Daniel 7. See, in that vision, the ancient of days has hair as white as wool. And in that vision, it's the Son of Man that approaches the Ancient of Days. But in John's vision, it is the Son of Man who has the white hair. And he indicates by that that Jesus is fully equal to his Father. And so the great high priest of the church is the one true God, says John. His eyes are like a flame of fire, telling us that absolutely nothing escapes his gaze. He is all-knowing, both about this world and about his church. His feet are like burnished bronze, speaking about his absolute purity. And finally, his voice, like the voice of the roar of waters, drowns out all other voices, so that when he speaks, all other voices are silenced. And then says John, I saw in his right hand seven stars. I mean, later on, we're told that the seven stars are the seven angels who are commissioned by Jesus to watch over each one of his churches. 
See, Jesus unleashes his powerful army, his army of angels, to protect and defend his church. And the sword coming from his mouth tells us that anything that Jesus says is done with military forcefulness. Finally, his face, shining like the sun, describes his glory. So let's keep on reading. Verses 17 to 20. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angel of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so we see that Jesus is Lord. He is risen from the dead, and in him is all the authority of heaven and earth. You'd be a fool if you did not fear him. And you would be a fool if you didn't know that his full attention is turned to protecting and defending his church. And so John, the man who knew Jesus intimately, as any man on earth ever had, falls on his knees. And were it not for Christ's mercy, John would have died on the spot. Jesus is far greater than even he had imagined. And with that, my friends, is the real Jesus, not to be trifled with, worthy of worship, Lord of heaven and earth, the Jesus who deeply loves his church. And because he lives, we do not fear the Roman emperor or any man-made ruler today. They can only kill the body, but he holds the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, when he speaks, his church had better listen. There is no voice like his. And as we will see, this same Jesus makes demands of his church. And his church is in peril if we will not hear. John, I was a bit intrigued by some of your final words where you said, uh, and that, my friends, is the real Jesus, not to be trifled with. And, uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about it, and you mentioned that, you know, sometimes we we sort of have an anemic perspective of who Jesus is amongst our culture and all the pressures and things that are going on, but we should not have that type of view. Yeah, I wonder whether or not our view of Jesus uh, is directly connected to the greatness of our culture. That is, if we think that our culture is greater than we can handle, or we think, you know, some great pressure coming upon believers, or what's the future going to hold? I'm so worried about it. Maybe all of those are symptoms that we've never caught a view of Jesus, that is, the resurrected Jesus who is presented in all his glory. And we need that vision probably more than anything else that, that we have. So can I put it this way? If, if, if our listeners, and you and I as well, Ben, I, we should include ourselves in this, but if we catch a picture of the Jesus who truly is, I'm going to suggest that most of the concerns in our life and most of the pressures in our life are going to seem less significant all the time. You know, show me a picture of Jesus, and I will show you how everything else in life takes its place. Thanks so much, John. And join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. In the next two months, Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld will be a key speaker at the Promise Keeper Canada Quest Conferences. This is an incredible opportunity to equip, encourage, and challenge men of all ages in their daily walk with Christ. And Back to the Bible Canada is excited to do its part. 
So join us in Ottawa, Winnipeg, and Edmonton. All dates and information for registration can be found at promisekeepers.ca. Or if you're interested in all the Bible teaching resources available to you through the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again, or our young adult ministry in doubt, or to support this ministry committed to Bible teaching, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And don't forget, this month only, Dr. Newfeld's new series, Celebration of Marriage, is available on CD as our free ministry gift. Just ask. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or online at backtothebible.ca.